Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to the Full Meeting Line podcast. This is episode 112, and tonight Steve and I are joined once again by one of our regular guest hosts, a man who needs no introduction. It's Mr. John Armenio. John, welcome back. Uh, it's great to be back, Sky, and I'm looking forward to discussing all sorts of children of the night. Yes. And on tonight's episode, the crux of our chosen topic isn't a film, but a book. Bram Stoker's 1897 tale of the now famous Transylvanian Count Dracula. As well as discussing this classic of horror literature, we're going to be discussing some of the big screen adaptations of Stoker's novel in particular, Todd Browning's 1931 film starring Bela Lugosi, titled, of course, Dracula, a film that kick-started a long-running series of monster features for Universal, and we'll also be discussing a more recent adaptation of the book, but one that is now already over three decades old. Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 film with the slightly longer title of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula author Bram Stoker, he was born in, is it Clontarf in Dublin? On November 8th, 1847 and died April 20th, 1912. The book was originally published, as I said, in 1897. Stoker had worked briefly as a civil servant and if my own memory serves, for a time he was a tax auditor in Dublin. I've actually visited his place of work in Dublin Castle where there's a memorial to him. The infamous Count in Stoker's book was originally going to be named Count Vampire and the book was going to have a five-act structure laid out more like, I guess, a play until Stoker later incorporated the legend of the real-life Vlad the Impaler, who then became Count Dracula. Now Dracula is an epistolary novel, a book that's written as a collection of realistic but fictional diary entries, telegrams, letters, ships, logs, 
and newspaper clippings, all of which added a level of realism to the story, a skill which Stoker had developed as a new newspaper writer. And at the time of his publication, Dracula was considered a straightforward horror novel based on imaginary creations of supernatural life. It gave form to a universal fantasy and became a part of popular culture like few other horror novels before it. His character of Dracula is an amalgam of various vampires written throughout the ages, and whilst not the first story told of vampires, I think it's safe to say that it would certainly become the most famous. Now, gents, let's talk about Stoker's book. Steve, you are Film 89's resident bookworm. When did you first read it? First time I read it, I've read it twice now, and the first time was back in the uh, late 80s before Bram Stoker's Dracula film came out. And I read it because I was such a fan of the 1931 version. It's a bit of a challenge when you're just used to novels because of the the fact that it's written in you know in diary form, you know, and um, ledger form, things like that. So it's more difficult to read if you're used to the just normal third-person narrative. Um, but uh, straight away, I, I, I really, really enjoyed it because it's such an atmospheric book and there's so much history to it and there's so much lore to it that it really, really captured you, I think. Yeah, um, I read it for the first time maybe five years ago, um, which I guess is pretty late. I went into it sort of like expecting the epistolary nature of it because I had read a lot about it. Um, I had read other 19th century horror books before, so it is kind of unusual, I think, to approach such a pillar of that genre like so late. But um, I found it like thrilling and and fun, but also flawed and not approaching the level of literary greatness that a book like Frankenstein is. But I found it a, a sort of fascinating insight into like Victorian hangups and what frightened people in England in the 1890s. Yeah, now people who've listened to this podcast from the start, there was a time when books would come up in, in, in our episodes and I, I would be quite honest about my then inability to read fiction. Don't know what it was. And Steve, you and I have had many discussions about this uh, sort of inability I had to to read fiction and my brain has come around these last couple of years and I've, I I can now read fiction don't know what it was that was holding me back there was just something that, that was just I think it was me. a certain um, William uh, Scurry influence there I think oh it was nothing to do with him but I, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not I'm not influenced by that man he, he doesn't he doesn't read at all no, I know. <laughs> but yeah, I since I've been able now to sort of break through this weird sort of psychological barrier that stopped me from reading works of fiction, you know, I, I've kind of thrown myself kind of headlong into it. And whilst most of my reading was kind of reference books, now I'm you know I'm enjoying sort of this, this huge world that's been opened up to me. And John, you said you first read Stoker's book five years ago, and I started reading it well five weeks ago, <laughs> and you know. Where do I start with the book? Right, that first segment, the bits with Jonathan Harker um, in his position as a solicitor, making this trek to Transylvania to kind of sort out the purchase of properties in England by this Transylvanian count, and everything that happens there is, for me, far and away the, the best part of the book. I love how atmospheric it is. I love the sense of foreboding, and I also love that the, the quite unique picture of the count that he paints which in my mind the way it's described is different to other versions this white hair white mustache very pointed features because as we're later come to when i think of 
Dracula, I think of Christopher Lee, Bella Lugosi. But I think the, the version he portrays in the book is much different. Yeah, I, I would have to uh, agree, um, especially because, you know, when um, Van Helsing shows up, he really slows down the pace of the novel and begins to sort of exposit over and over again. But but here, you know, we're sort of like in Harker's shoes. We don't know this like foreign land that we're going to. He's fascinated by the food and the landscape. And there is just such revelry in Gothic iconography in like howling wolves and, you know, carriage rides at night and strange sounds and huge castles and ruined fortresses. So all that stuff is is real fun and real thrilling even, you know, a hundred some years later. Yeah, I think that, um, as you say, at the beginning, we've got the mystery and we are brought into this mystery a lot, you know, the same time as Jonathan Harkin is. So we don't have a lot of explanation. We don't need a lot of explanation. I agree with John as soon as Van Helsing comes in. He does like to explain a lot, and that does slow the story down. But that's what we need later on. That is something that you know the book does need. We do we do need this background. We do need this uh, knowledge of who vampires are and what they are and where they come from. But the allure of that first section is it is just a complete and utter mystery, a gothic mystery. And he does pull out all the stops. So people like um, Lovecraft and um, Garland Poe, you know, around the time and a bit later, you could you could see they had that kind of influence as well. You know, I mean, they I think they probably took it from Stoke and really throw in every gothic cliche, every gothic um, adjective they could and throwing it you know at the paper and it really really works yeah clive barker called it a first first rate 19th century trashy novel <laughs> well that's something that uh, you know we get to later coppola is quite good at taking trashy novels and making them into uh, something pretty good absolutely you know i i like the way it's written this epistolary sort of style i think that works but yeah like you say when we get to london and i think i'd I'd, I'd maybe seen a snippet of a review, whether it was a written one of the book or people discussing it on some video on YouTube. But there was some mention of the fact that the middle portion of the book just seriously kind of grinds to a halt. You know, I, I just think there's so much fat on this middle portion of the story. We go into far too much detail in events revolving around Lucy. Events are built up to such a big degree that when we get to the final act of the book, I don't know if I mentioned to you guys, but I was... One night, I was coming to the end of the book. I think I had 12 pages left. It got to that point where I just hit that wall of, of tiredness. And I thought, I really could just finish this book now in, you know, 15, 20 minutes or whatever. But I, I just, I couldn't. And I said to you guys the next day, got 12 pages left. I'm going to finish the book tonight. But by that point, they hadn't even caught up with Dracula. And I'm thinking, the amount of time this Stoker has taken to build up and explain events and situations and scenarios in this book... He just simply hasn't got enough time to bring this book to a satisfying conclusion. And lo and behold, the eventual killing of Dracula, you know, spoiler alert for, for, for a <laughs> book that's, I don't know, 127 years old. The actual killing of Dracula it is literally six lines, two paragraphs, three lines each. I, I was reading it, I was, I was sitting next to my wife and I just, she said, oh, is it that thing with the end of the book where it sort of doesn't live up to your expectations? And I'm like... Yeah, i got to be honest, uh, yeah, they literally just killed him with no fanfare, no big epic confrontation, and, and that was it. And there was a nice coda at the end of the book, something which I'll come back to later when we're talking about Coppola's film. But yeah, it, it kind of a bit of a damp squid of a final confrontation, and that really kind of did make me think, oh, I would have traded in 
swathes of the middle portion of this book just to make the final act a little bit more satisfying. I do wonder if maybe that was, you know, um, the fact that it was written in Victorian times, the idea of this, you know, building up to a huge climax and having this uh, thrilling moment at the end wasn't really established in literature at the time. I haven't read a great deal apart from, you know, this and Dickens and a few of those. So I I don't know. But I'm I'm just wondering if if maybe the era, this Victorian era, they they didn't call for things like that. It was the build up was more important than, than the climax. And I also think that using this epistolary style, everything is third hand, and that limits what you can do with the ending then. I guess, because, yeah. because if you are going to write it and you are going to keep true to this uh, concept that you've had from the very beginning, you can't go off and write you know, from many different um, points of view uh, all simultaneously as everything is happening you know, and, as every, and as all the different characters come together. You are writing from one person's point of view at a time. Hmm. And so that's a, a limit to that as well, you know. I, I have to think, Sky, that you, your opinion is one shared by a lot of people because there is this ongoing fascination in mediums from film to, to comics to novels that it, it seems like people are so unsatisfied of Dracula's death that they have to keep inventing ways for him to come back. You know, like the Tomb of Dracula is that Dracula actually survived the events of the novel. There are some different Hammer films are, are that way, that, you know, the Universal sequels. So, uh, you know, that's, I think people who have read the book have always sort of imagined a grander destiny for Dracula. Maybe, John, what, what I'm forgetting is the fact that when this book first came out, Dracula, the character which, you know, Stoker essentially created in this form he hadn't attained his legendary status so this book was yeah. kind of like, like i said it was described as just a, a kind of common or garden gothic horror tale and I, I guess if you take away the the huge weight that is now behind the character and look at it from that point of view maybe stoker just felt that it didn't warrant some sort of big grandstanding finale and it was suitable in the way that he ended it so yeah maybe I, it's I, me I, kind of you know, like many people are doing just sort of not reading looking at the book and certainly the ending in context of when it actually came out and the fact that we at that point you know everything was new and fresh and you know he'd only just created this character i i expect the characters to come back now don't we yeah Yeah. you know yeah if 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 we kill the character off first time we are disappointed you know we are we accept or we suspect that something's going to happen we we want the dead villain, the dead supernatural villain, mm. to all of a sudden to jump out at you at the very second. I mean, mm. we can blame Brian De Palma and Carrie for that, I think. But there's something that is so much within our culture now that we can't accept that, you know, he gets killed and it's over. I also think it's important to keep in mind the context of Stoker's career as a writer in that nothing else he wrote was good. <laughs> And so if there's something unsatisfying in Dracula, it might be his fault, not our fault. Yeah. Well, well, John, you you mentioned Frankenstein, which you've read. Steve, have you read it? Oh, a long, long time ago, yes. Now, I've yet to read Mary Shelley's book, which was written the early part of the 1800s. Am I right in thinking that it's probably half the length of Stoker's book, maybe 250-odd pages or thereabouts? It's a very dense book, if I remember yeah. correctly, because it is a book of philosophy more than anything. Mm. It, it's a book of ideas, whereas you know, um, Dracula is a book of you know trying to scare its readers in the light. 
Um, Frankenstein is very much a book of trying to fathom the meaning of life and uh, the meaning of existence and things like that, you know, yeah. because there is one a large part of it is one long conversation, if I remember correctly. Well, I think the whole book is a conversation, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, it almost is an epistolary novel because people are remembering stories that other people have told, and so there is a lot of flashbacks and, and flash-forwards. But yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's very much about you know the meaning of existence and can man become God and and can an uncreated creature become alive? Like uh, very deep philosophical, weighty topics. Yes, if we take God out to man, is he really man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is literally next on my list of books to read now that I've read Dracula. I, I want to read maybe Shelley's book. It's a very weighty tome, if I remember correctly. Mm. It's a very difficult read. You know, I, I think of the 454 pages of the version of Dracula I just read, I think, you know, if, if you went through that story, you know, again and, and sort of chopped the fat out, I think you could easily chop out 70 to 100 pages and, and be left with maybe a more satisfying book. Yeah, quite possibly. But again, we are judging it from our expectations yes. of today. I think back then, I don't think that would have been a problem. Yeah, I don't think that's a fair way to sort of judge this book from 1897. And, you know, I, I, I enjoyed reading the book. There were more times where I felt compelled to sort of carry on through it than there were anything hinting at me thinking, oh, do you know, I just want this to end. You know, I did enjoy it overall. I'm glad I read this book and I, I, I did find it you know, an enjoyable experience overall. I think another problem with reading it today is that because we are so familiar with the story, yeah, we keep expecting for the next scene to come along. And the next moment to come along and if that doesn't come along very quickly sometimes it might seem like it's being dragged out yeah so let's uh should we move on top of the 31 film okay yeah yes sir so dracula became a stage play that made its debut on broadway in october of 1927 universal sent a representative to watch the play with a view to the studio turning it into a film the play ran for 33 weeks and Hungarian actor Bela Lugosi played Dracula in the play and was eventually cast in the 1931 film adaptation after the studio's second choice, Lon Chaney, their first choice having been Conrad Veidt who had passed on the film. Chaney had died of throat cancer aged 47 in August of 1930. Now Bram Stoker's novel had already been filmed without permission as Nosferatu in 1922 by F.W. Murnau. Stoker's widow sued for plagiarism and copyright infringement and the courts decided in her favour, essentially ordering that all prints of Nosferatu be destroyed. Thankfully, they weren't. And then Hollywood producer Carl Lemley Jr. saw the box office potential in Stoker's Gothic Chiller, and he legally acquired the novel's film rights. Initially, he wanted Dracula to be a spectacle on a scale with the lavish silent films, The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1923 and The Phantom of the Opera from 1925. Universal Pictures paid $40,000 for all rights to the novel and the stage plays, so they would have the exclusive rights to the to, you know, to the Dracula character, I guess. Now, unlike in Stoker's book, in Browning's film version, it's actually R.N. Renfield that visits the Count in Transylvania as opposed to his colleague, Jonathan Harker. Now, is that right that they're actually colleagues who work for the same solicitor's firm? Yes, but in the novel, you know, it's Renfield. It starts with Renfield having been driven mad, yeah. and Harker going to Castle Dracula. Whereas we get to see uh, the breaking of Renfield's mind in the thirty-one version. Yeah, there's also a suggestion in the Coppola version. Harker asks uh, his boss, you know, what was wrong? You know, why? You know, his predecessor come back mad, and uh, his boss actually just smiles, says, "Oh, personal." 
you know. Mm. But there's also a suggestion that, yes, something untoward has happened to him, mm-hmm. which is, you know, played up in the first film. So uh, it, it's, it's a suggestion that maybe, you know, money is more important than uh, you know, your safety. Yeah. Now, I, I really think that Dwight Fry as the initially when we see him he's normal but then as the later deranged Renfield I think he's really good and later on in the film that shot of him crawling on the floor towards the maid is just brilliant even though it cuts short of him actually doing anything to it but I I think his performance the way it turns from the first part of the film to when we later see him is just brilliant yeah, there's a great uh, comic adaptation that just wrapped up by James Tinian and Martin Simmons, published by Image, and it really digs into the psychological horror of Renfield. Like the the center is, of their adaptation is really his perspective and his obsession with eating <laughs> bugs and his time in the sanitarium. If you didn't think you could be disturbed by the 1931 Universal version anymore, I highly recommend anyone checking that comic out. It's really interesting. Now, again, like I said, that my favourite part of Stoker's book was that opening few chapters with Jonathan Harker in Transylvania confronting the Count. You know, the same applies to Browning's version, that, you know, the, the, the opening bits with Renfield making his way. You know, first he, he meets villagers. He's I think when we first meet him, he's, he's, he's on a, a horse-drawn cart, isn't he, with other people, and they're kind of warning him about where he's going. And then when he gets to the castle and finally meets Dracula, and obviously the, he gets picked up, by a horse and cart, and it turns out, just like in the book, the actual rider or the driver of the, of the cart is actually Dracula, because, as we later find out, doesn't imply anyone, it's just him in the castle. So he kind of lives, apart from, you know, as we later see his three brides, he, he lives in solitude. Cinematographer Carl Freund had shot Metropolis for, for Fritz Lang, and he was the cinematographer on this film. Let's talk about the, you know, the look of the film, especially in that first act, because I think, you know, and certainly the production design is, is just tremendous. There's a shot in there where of the um, carriage going towards the castle, and you know it's a composite shot. And obviously, it's a it's a painting, but it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. As the mm-hmm. you know, as it's moving away from the camera, the the carriage up towards the castle, and they have quite a few moments like that. They, they are they they really really beautiful. The rest of the film, which we'll get onto in a second, is very much like a chamber piece, but that opening sequence, up until we see Dracula for the first time, some of the photography in that is just amazing. Yeah. yeah, and the 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 scene with the carriage riding up to the castle that was shot the carriage portion of that shot that was shot at Vasquez Rocks, where so many great Star Trek episodes were filmed. Oh, is that uh, the slanting rocks? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, I, I love the, the design of the interior of the castle, the transition from the sort of ruined portion to to the more well maintained portion. You know how it's, it's scaled for people who are twenty five feet tall. And yeah. and things like, hey, let's put some armadillos in the in in the dungeon. Yeah. It's an eight foot tall spider web. And well, God, the, the just... spider web on the stairs. It at one point it looks like it's covering the whole stairs, and he's walking down. And then the next minute he's on the other side of the spider web. Yeah, and it's not touched. And I and the little things like that is really really excellent. Yeah, it's implied, isn't it, that he's he's kind of walked through without disturbing the, 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 yeah, the this yeah. huge mesh of cobwebs which obviously as Renfield finds out it's impossible how did he get through and just the the first shot of, we see of Lugosi where like the camera zooms in on onto his unprecedented staring eyes like it's just one of the great introductions in film history well people have said haven't they about Lugosi that when he entered a room he just somehow managed to make his presence felt and you just couldn't help but be kind of awestruck by this sort of 
charisma and presence and kind of aura that this guy had. Yeah, I've heard people say that he, like contemporaries of, of him, that he was the most sexually attractive man that they've ever seen. And we look at him now, and that's hard to fathom, but people were like ravenous for him. Like he was a, like a towering sex symbol of the 1930s. Well, he, he was exotic, wasn't he? He was everything yeah. that, you know, uh, that they didn't have. They didn't have, you know, he was he was in no way American at all. He was this exotic European who's just come over. You know, the idea of a count as well, very enticing. So, yeah, when you look at him today, he's not exactly you know, people's idea of manhood. But uh, back in the day, I can, I can actually, you know, believe that. Yeah, it was that accent as well, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. and, and that sort of translated so well to then to the fact that you had this sort of Romanian count. And, you know, for American audiences, they wouldn't have made any differentiation between a Hungarian and a Romanian accent. It all would have just sounded equally exotic and, and you know, I guess, yeah, enticing and alluring and, and special, you know. And that's what we wanted. They, they wanted this character to stand out and to be something that audiences had not seen before. And I certainly think, even on screen in this film, so much of, of Lugosi's performance is just based on his presence and his luck. On the fact he never blinks at all to no. the whole film. Yeah. When he learned his lines for the play, he didn't speak English, so he learned them phonetically. And I think that unusual diction and pronunciation carries over into the film and is why his performance remains so quotable and so iconic. Because like nobody's ever spoken like that since. You, he's inimitable. He, he left a stamp on our psyches with just his presence and his pattern of speech. Yeah, I think this is something that um, from move from silent movies where everybody had the same voice you know it was whatever voice you had in your head uh, and then move into sound films you know and this is only four years after the jazz singer so sound was new and then a lot of to a lot of people they were hearing these accents for the very very first time yeah so well i think as a good sort of segue and just to sort of re- reiterate how great a performance the ghosties was Let's talk about the Spanish version, because the film was shot twice simultaneously. This version directed by Todd Browning and the Spanish language version that directed George Melford shot with an entirely different cast and crew during the evenings and nights once the English crew had wrapped for the day. So this Spanish language version with Carlos Villarías as Dracula. And it's worth noting that this version is 30 minutes longer than Browning's film. Certainly the version of the film that we've got now, the 74 minute version. So obviously the English language 1931 version of Dracula is seen by many as the iconic version of Stoker's story adapted to film. What do you think of Villarius's performance as Dracula? It's hard to com- to have to live up to Lugosi, but I I honestly don't think it's very good. He's hamming it up the way Lugosi did, but he just doesn't have a shred of the charisma. And I think especially in a movie that's a half an hour longer than the English version, it really drags the film down. And, you know, I, I hear critics talking about the technical aspects of the Spanish version, but I think it it has just as many awkward transitions and strange staging choices that take me out of the film as much as Browning's version. So I, I have to say that it's the inferior version to, to the English language one. I agree, yeah. But I, I'm not sure if you can compare... You, you, I'm not sure if you can really say that he had the weight of Lugosi's performance, you know, to live up to, because they were filmed at the same time. Yeah, no, I just mean, like, know. if I'm comparing but, it... To, oh, yes, to, in, subsequently we can do that. But, but even back then, it seemed as if he was a... 
uh, amateur production trying to be Bela Lugosi. And it, it doesn't work. I mean, he, he, he does all the, a lot of the same movements and the, the hand gestures and, and the eyes, but he hasn't got that otherness Lugosi had. And because of that, he's just, he's not scary. He's just, he does seem like a ham actor. That's a horrible thing to say to an actor because it's the last thing they want to um, be called. But that's the way that uh, he comes across, I think, as if it is just an amateur production of Dracula. Yeah. And I, I think in terms of all the other characters aside from Dracula, Renfield and Van Helsing, because I don't think any of the other characters in both films are particularly memorable. But I think the Van Helsing in the Spanish version is particularly weak when you compare him to the version in the English language version played by Edward Van Sloan. I just think he's a far stronger and more memorable actor than the version they get in the Spanish one. And yeah, it, it just really does drag. It, it you know that thirty minutes really does you know make his presence known. And I think there's you know there's moments in the English language version that drag for a seventy four minute film. There are little bits where I don't think this film is anywhere near the best of the universal horror films no I, I, as i said i mean for the majority of the film as soon as he goes to england it's very much like a chamber piece they you did say that talking Steve. in rooms. yeah yeah, did. yeah. yeah. And, I, and i think that's that's the best way to describe it because they are often in a room just talking yeah and that's not scary yeah you know, from... all the, all the atmosphere the gothic atmosphere of the first um, quarter all that is jettisoned for you know something that it would have been set in the present day or you know only only within most people's lifetimes it would have been too ord- um, ordinary too obvious there's there's yeah. no mystery there it, by all accounts you know Todd Browning was not uh, an active di- director on this film i think he was overwhelmed by his first foray, foray into sound and it seemed like Carl Freund was the one doing most of the directing and so I think if you look at the other Universal Monster movies, they are much better directed than this one. And Browning certainly has a ton of excellent silent horror films to his credit. So I don't know why some directors were able to adapt. And, and he wasn't. I think he was having some personal problems while this movie was being made. And I think he really did feel the loss of Lon Chaney, who was his creative collaborator. And yeah, I think if it wasn't for... Dwight Fry and Bell Gosey, this would have been a pretty forgettable film, unfortunately. As much as I absolutely love it, it really is thanks to, to those performances. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that um, one of the things they used to do a lot back then was just film plays. And that's very much mm-hmm. what the second half of the film is it's just a filmed play with no real attempt to expand it in any way apart from what you see and you know, what you could have seen on the stage in front of you. Yeah. And I think you're right there, Steve. I think because, you know, let's look at the fact that, I, you know, the film is actually more of an adaptation of the existing stage play at the time than of Stoker's book. And, and for me, it's just hard to ignore the fact that it just doesn't show us many of the things we become, or that have become synonymous with Dracula. The, the pronounced vampire teeth, the neck biting, the blood sucking, the staking through the heart. So much of this film does seem timid and hamstrung by the Breen Code at the time, which was so restrictive. And I think Todd Browning had, in a way, given in to this, and therefore he'd failed to give this film actual frights and scares. Also, I think his silent film directorial style doesn't really translate into talkies as well as other directors had done so well. And it's like, yeah, you, you, you said when we first discussed doing this episode, Steve, that the 31 version is very much a chamber piece. Now, Nosferatu, 
ten, nearly 10 years before, I think was a way creepier film. That said, Lugosi does carry so much of the film with his performance alone. And I would love to see the mooted 84 minute cut that's no longer available just to see if any of the scares that I feel the film is lacking were in that original version. But, you know, I really do understand the difficulty the film has faced with in presenting supernatural horror in 1931. Filmmakers, afraid to offend the strict sensibilities of the time, actors untrained and unfamiliar with sound films and you know, the intimacy of the microphone and the limitations of early sound recording as well, which you also have to fact in. But I also think that um, Browning is no like James Whale. Mm, when you look at yeah. what um, they, um, Frankenstein and um, the old Dark House, Whale had a, a real dark sense of humour, which Browning doesn't seem to have in this film. Um, Whale does really push the envelope of what was acceptable at the time. Yeah, and Browning doesn't seem to want to do that. So, I mean, it, it, I think that the failure is in Browning's, not just the material, but it is Browning's as well. Because I think that somebody like James Whale would have infused it with a lot more humour and a lot more subtext than than is there at the moment. And if you look at like one of my favourite pre-code horror films, which came out the next year, Island of Lost Souls, which also yeah. starred Bela Lugosi, you know, that's incredibly disturbing. And very transgressive. Now, it also was a commercial failure. So, in a sense, Universal made the right call in taming the instincts of of Dracula. But yeah, there's there was definitely room in the pre-code horror world for this film to have pushed more boundaries. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, you're right there, John. It's been tamed, doesn't it, in order to sort of satisfy or, or sort of stave off the moral condemnation they would have got from civil and artistic authorities at the time which i think did hamper the film's ability to deliver true scares i think even mm. shots of rats in films were seen as being in ex- extremely poor taste at the time and i gotta say the end in the killing of dracula is just is so anticlimactic because it's off screen and even for a period the actual cries Dr- dracula makes as the stake is being hammered into him which is all off screen they were cut out for, for a long period and then later reinstated mm-hmm. if you you know if you look at that final act of James Whale's Frankenstein the same year. That final act is so thrilling. Yeah, it's so better shot and just more thrilling. Yeah, like you say, and apart from that odd little code at the end, I think that film ties itself up much better. But, you know, the 31 film has still got so much going for it that can't be denied. Like the way those early scenes in Dracula's castle with him and and him and the bride's awakening, beautifully staged and shot by Browning and cinematographer Carl Fryne. And like we said, the production design is just superb. So you can't uh, overstate Lugosi's uh, performance either, because even today, when we think of Dracula, we think of Lugosi. Yeah. I mean, if you ask a a child who have you know who's never seen a horror film before, what do you think of Dracula? And they, they inevitably they come back to you know, the cape and um, you know the uh, the hairstyle with the little um, spike at the front, you know, and yeah. all this. This, this, is, this seems to be so ingrained into our culture these days so that its impact is undeniable you know and, and it all comes from this film we, we can we can talk about the shortcomings in the film but without it our whole concept of dracula would be completely different yeah it's like the shadow lord of the rings cast on all fantasy literature afterwards like you you have to deal with lugosi if you're playing a vampire you're either going to play against him or play or just know that you're going to be imitating him or at least when you're playing dracula it's his shadow is inescapable. Yeah, yeah. So the film cost $441,000, which was more than $85,000 over budget. The shoot was scheduled initially for 36 days, but Browning ended up shooting for 42 days. His 84-minute cut was reduced by the studio to 75 minutes. The final release version included the now-lost Curtin speech by Edward Van Sloan, 
at the end of the movie, but that scene was removed for the 1938 re-release so as not to offend religious groups and the scene never returned, which is why the version we have now is 74 minutes long. The film grossed $1.2 million worldwide on its initial release and more again on subsequent re-releases and was generally well received by critics in spite of its unfashionably macabre subject matter and would of course be the springboard for Universal to wholly embrace the audience's desire to see more of these monster movies. Uh, there is a, an example of Todd Browning not knowing what he's doing <laughs> when Harker is trying to bat away Dracula as a bat. Like he's trying to shoo him away. And the actor David Manners is just stumbling around the set. And it's really pathetic. Um, I guess it works for Harker because he is just sort of a dud as a man and as a human being to have him like impotently slapping at a bat that's actually dracula but it's just such an awkward weird scene that you would have thought had you would have said let's do another take but nope they they kept it in and it's weird yeah well gents shall we fast forward 61 years 1992 francis ford coppola adapting stoker's book keanu reeves winona Ryder, anthony hopkins let's talk about bram stoker's dracula Dracula. Welcome to my home. Expecting you. <laughs> so, gents, take us through your own uh, personal experience with a film which, uh, well, am I right, John? This, yeah, certainly this would have been released in your lifetime, and, and obviously, mm. you know, also in mine and Steve's. Yeah, I did not see it in theaters because uh, I would have been like eight and th this was a little too <laughs> racy for uh, an eight-year-old me. But, you know, when I first saw it, I immediately fell in love with it. It's just like Grand Guignol, operatic, blood everywhere, blood spurting from crucifixes, blood spurting onto crucifixes, um, Anthony Hopkins humping people, just beautiful elaborate costumes, taking the history of Dracula and just turning it into gothic fantasy, mythologizing these characters, the, the Christ, Antichrist parallels, you know, like all of the religious imagery and, and references that were maybe subtext in the Stoker text and in the original and in the 31 version are just made text in this one. It's like if Mario Bava or Dario Argento directed a Hammer film. I love this movie. <laughs> you sound like you do. <laughs> uh, I saw it for the first time uh, in um, 
the Odeon Leicester Square in London on a huge screen. And it's such an overwhelming experience seeing it like that. It's 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 massive. And I, what, what got me was you know, the music, it's, it's so loud. The editing is just, it's got fantastic pace throughout it. It doesn't slow down. Even in the, the love scenes, the camera's always moving. There's always something going on. To be honest, I don't know how long the film's on. But, but it's it two, hours, seem two to hours, seven minutes. I don't believe that. It doesn't seem to last that long yeah. at all. This movie cooks. Oh, it does. It's fantastic. And seeing it on the big screen is an overwhelming experience. I would, if you ever get the chance to do that, John, try to get it on the big screen because I think that you would truly appreciate it. I would love to, yeah. Well, let's go back to the beginning then, guys. Let's talk about that prologue of the Romanian knight Vlad Tepes or Vlad the Impaler and his fight against the Turks because we see him victorious in battle. But then we see the vengeful Turks send in his beloved Elisabetta a false letter telling of Vlad's death and she then throws herself hundreds of feet into a river below and dies. He then returns and finds her dead. He renounces God, rams his sword into the cross at the abbey which bleeds and he drinks of the blood that comes out (laughs) and we have the film's title card. And then we cut to London, 400 years later in the year 1897, the same year that Stoker's book was set. But that opening, guys. Oh, it's fantastic. And uh, we got Anthony Hopkins, his nemesis from the very, very beginning. The whole film is reincarnation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and uh, the, the the special effects, the photography, uh, it's just so, it's, and it's so unusual because you wouldn't normally expect to see um, a fight scene told through the, I don't, I don't know what I should, I should call it, it's the uh, silhouette yeah, and puppets, um, the puppetry. Yeah. I think it's in marionettes, you know? aren't they? Marionette, yeah. You, yeah. you see kind and of That's like not the... something you would normally... Yeah, Roman you know, Coppola you know, refers to them as, as shadow puppets. Yeah. And, and yeah, like that Gary Oldman in his red dragon armor, renouncing God, skewering a crucifix with his sword, and then drinking the blood that spurts out is just one of the most John Arminio moments in cinema history. Like it, it, it could be the cover of a death metal album, and I love it. And it just like gets me hyped just thinking about it. It's so unlike Coppola as well, isn't it? It's yeah. more um, Ken Russell than Coppola. You know, There's a couple it, other it, Ken Russell images in this movie too, for sure. They are, they are, yeah. But that's when you when you go see a uh, Francis Coppola film, this is not what you expect. Straight away, it hits you in the face with all the the iconography and the unless you say that everywhere in that scene, it's gushing out of that. Um, I, I never knew a crucifix could hold so much blood. <laughs> And it is interesting because, you know, the previous film Coppola did was Godfather 3, and that also deals with centuries of sin being reckoned with by the characters and and with, like, religious institutions at large. And so it's interesting to see such the same filmmaker approaching similar themes, but with such diametrically opposed opposed approaches. Yeah, Um, and the corruption of innocence. Yeah. There's something in both films as well, yeah. Yeah. I had I had never put them together before. I have to admit, uh, I'd never thought of the Godfather Part Three and Bram Stoker's Dracula. I, I had never thought of the themes that run through the two of them. And I think commercially, because Godfather Three was such a disappointment, he had to make a hit. And so, without Godfather Three, we wouldn't have Bram Stoker's Dracula. It was Winona Ryder who, because she wasn't able to perform in Godfather 3, she took the script to him as a way of trying to make up, you know, because she thought perhaps he was very angry with her because she had to drop out the last minute of Godfather 3. And so she had a meeting with him and she said she left the script with him and uh, she thought he, he just 
wasn't going to give it any you know thought whatsoever and he just glanced down and as soon as he saw the title she said you could see his eyes brighten his, his eyes just lit up because this is one of his favorite novels of all time so um yeah you're right without the disappointment of uh, Winona Ryder not appearing in Godfather 3 we wouldn't have this film yeah, because Winona Ryder, obviously she plays both Elizabeth in the prologue and later on Mina Harker. Now she was, like you say, originally met, she was going to play Michael's daughter in the role that Sofia Coppola would obviously go on to play. But hadn't she declined in order to star in Edward Scissorhands for Tim Burton? According to Coppola, it was because she was sick. Yeah, yeah but yeah, isn't it around about the time that she would have been shooting Edward yeah. Scissorhands? I just think he's being polite there, isn't he? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. She, <laughs> she, she picked Tim Burton over the director of The Godfather. Like she made the right choice for her career, it seems like. Yeah, she thinks she did. Now, prior to that, we meet Jonathan Harker, played by Keanu Reeves, who here is tasked with travelling to Transylvania in his role as a solicitor, whereas obviously in the 31 version, it was Renfield who we see go to Dracula's castle. Now, this whole section of Harker travelling to Transylvania and then Dracula's castle and then meeting this aged and really odd-looking count as it was in the 31 version, as it was in the book, is my, and really so much so here, is my favourite part of the film. And I just wish it'd gone on longer, in spite of, guys, and I'm going to say it, Keanu Reeves is pretty terrible acting. <laughs> now, all right, I have sort of a bone to pick with Coppola over this, because I think everything Keanu does is 100% what Coppola wanted. And my on-screen evidence for that is actually Keanu's hair. Because in a film with such specific hair and costuming choices, I have to think that Keanu's, like, 1990s heartthrob hairdo is on purpose. And when his hair later goes white, it looks like it's from a spray can that someone got at a your Halloween store, so I have to assume that that is on purpose, and so I think Coppola is just making Harker ridiculous. Yeah. And, and a, a point to, to, like, for us to not take him seriously and to, and to find him pathetic. Now, I, I don't know if that's the correct choice, but I think that's all what Coppola wanted. I don't think he wanted to make him pathetic, because he originally wanted Christian Slater to be in the role, but he dropped mm-hmm. out. He said that Keanu Reeves tried, worked really, really hard to try and get that accent right. And in fact, he was working so hard. That's the reason why he came across very stilted. And Mm -hmm. he did say that he maybe should have been more critical at the time. However, he he admitted he liked Keanu Reeves so much that he just let him go (laughs) go on with it. And uh, he said, but then he wanted a heartthrob because when he said when we went to the airport, it was Keanu Reeves that everybody wanted to see. So I'm not sure if he wanted to make him look ridiculous. I think he just wanted a 90s heartthrob in that Yeah. Because where was Reeves at this point? He'd, he'd done Point Break in 91, hadn't he? And and Bill and Ted, for sure, yeah. certainly. So, you know, he was hot shit at the time, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, because Coppola had the main cast sit around for like three days reading out passages from the book, which, according to him, really frustrated Anthony Hopkins and others. But weren't he doing accents when they were doing that round table read? Because at some point, surely someone should have said, Keanu, are you going to even try an English accent? (laughs) (laughs) And this is also a movie that that casts Tom Waits, who's one of my heroes, absolutely, but as an English person, um, which is an insane idea, but I love every second that Tom Waits is on screen. Well, there's nothing wrong with his accent at all. No. Yeah. I, <laughs> he's just mental. He is. Yeah. He's in the right place in that uh, mental hospital. Yeah. And I, I think, John, you're right that Coppola 
you know, he got from Reeves what he wanted because the, you know, the interviews, the commentaries and stuff, which, you know, where Coppola's talked in detail about this film. He's never said anything disparaging about Reeves, but of Winona Ryder's performance, he has said, and he put it quite diplomatically, he said that he always felt that she had a deeper well of talent than she was willing to dip into. Oh! <laughs> deep, deep cut there, Francis. Yeah. Well, this is a different role for her, isn't yeah. it? So, because um, Winona Ryder, fantastic actress, great, great actress, but one thing she never really did in her career was tap into her sexuality, which she's asked to, asked to do in this film. And I not maybe that felt made her feel a bit uncomfortable. Maybe just just not something that she would naturally fall into, because it, it, I can't think of another role in which she had to use her sexuality as much as this. Mm. She and was the eighties, the nineties it girl, wasn't she? But yeah, she yeah. wasn't the the sexy one. It does fit Mina because I mean Mina's even in her costume, she's very buttoned up and very conservative. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree. It she did have trouble t- tapping into that like more passionate part of her but also in the tradition of universal and hammer horror and monster movies the romantic leads are the least interesting characters yeah. <laughs> um yeah, yeah and and so it's 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 kind of what you're in for in a movie like this i guess yeah i, I don't think there's anything wrong with the performance though you know at the no. end when she's you know take me away from all this death i think i i believe her I really, mm-hmm. really do. I believe those moments when they are together. You know, I, I believe that she's seduced by this man. She does play the, you know, the buttoned-up proper lady very, very well, as she did in The Age of Innocence as well. She plays that role very, very well. It's just that, I don't know, maybe it's because it's not something we, we know of. Her. When it comes to the sexuality part of her, it's not something that comes to mind. She doesn't seem to be, you know, when she's running around um, in her nightdress and, you know, um, in, in the rain and everything, that that's something that... Most women would probably and and then the top couple of buttons of their uh, um, nightdress or their blouse or anything like that. You can't imagine her doing that. Hmm. Well, going back to those earlier scenes with Harker and the Count, we we also have and again, oh, the, the the thing that stuck with me from this film from the very first time I saw it. And so, anytime anyone mentions the film, it's the thing I think of is the third character in the form of Dracula's shadow and how well that's done. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. I mean, yeah. come on. And God, that just speaks to just how unique this film looks because Coppola made such a point of only doing in-camera special effects. Yeah. And so having to go back to like turn of the 20th century techniques for, for doing effects. So like like puppets, like mirrors, like multiple elements being projected on, onto a, a flat screen as, you know, using on-stage miniatures and forced perspective. And that really did scare special effects artists. So that's why he had to hire his son to be the second unit director and head of special effects. And, and it nothing looks like this movie because it's using 20th century equipment with 19th century techniques. And it just looks beautiful. And the effects like surprise you and they never look faked or forced. It's just gorgeous. Well, yeah, I, I think it's worth noting as well, just to put things into perspective, like in any other film, like take for example, that shot of Harker on the train on his way to Transylvania. You've got the red sky in the background outside the train, which was an artificial background. But that train was actually there. The, the fake background was there, and being projected onto it was those images of Dracula's eyes. That was all there on set. And they That's built a giant book. Well. Yeah. For, 
Like, that book was, like, five times the size of a normal book so they could get the perspective correct. And that's got to help the performances, hasn't it? To mm. see those, that to see that face if you look out the window, yeah. um, looking down at you. That's really, really good. You, know, you, you can criticise uh, Keanu Reeves and say maybe it didn't help his performance, but for the actors to see, instead of just looking at a, well, we just look at a green screen these days, to see that and when you look out the window and you can see it all, that's got to help them. Yeah. And back in England, then we meet Lucy Westerner, played by Sadie Frost, and we see her being courted as she was in the book by three suitors: the Texan Quincy P. Morris, played by Bill Campbell, Doctor John Seward, played by Richard E. Grant, and Lord Arthur Holmwood, played by follower of Film Eighty Nine, Kerry Elwes. Nice. Here we see, I think, a kind of a big departure from the book where Dracula is able to exert some sort of influence on Mina from afar, even though he's still in Transylvania. Now, obviously, that's come about because, unlike in the book, there's no connection in it, is there, in the book between Mina and Elizabeth? That, no. That, that's an... Yeah, that's a construct yeah. of this film, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, it, it might have been from another source or inspired by another horror movie, but it's definitely not from the book or any other Dracula story that, that I am aware of. Yeah. And then, also in England, we see Tom Waits playing the insane R.N. Renfield. Now, as great... i got to say this, guys, and... I couldn't, I couldn't ignore this thought as, as I was. I think it was on my third or fourth watch of, the, of this film in, in, in as many you know, weeks or whatever. As great as Tom Waits is as Renfield, I don't know if, if his character is as crucial to the story here as it is in the book, even if it's crucial at all in the book, I guess. And Coppola does say that whenever the film was aired on television, that oftentimes Waits' scenes would be cut out entirely. Now, I love his performance. I think he's great in terms of his performance and how he looks as well. But I don't know if how much the story needs his character. Yeah, b- because Gary Oldman is so charismatic and suave and and sexy as Dracula, he doesn't need a, a sort of valet, an insane valet, to, to lay the groundwork for his arrival the way Renfield does in the book and and in the the thirty one version. Oh. And so he's he's just like this insane doomsayer and i'm here for every second that he's there and saying creepy stuff and eating bugs with these weird like wire gloves that he has but as far as like a, a narrative necessity it he doesn't have it he's there to he's an illustration of how dracula can command and his power over yeah. us as humans isn't he sure and that's more or less all he is in the uh, the film and also he you know by getting um Richard E. Grant's uh, character to be the you know the in, you know in charge of the assailant asylum, it, it, it's a connection there as well. But um, you know, it's a fantastic performance. I really really think it's great. But if somebody was to cut it all out, would we notice it's more like a director's cut performance rather than uh, you know an original cut? Yeah. But like I say, I, I've got no problem with it whatsoever. I think that he's he's really really good in the role. I I do like his character. I do like his uh, interactions with um, Richard E. Grant, so um, you know I'm, I'm I'm glad he's there. I, I think maybe that maybe that question I'm, I'm levying is more towards the book because there's so much of Renfield in the book and his discussions with Seawood and you know there's so much about him that I just think the book didn't need to have. And I don't, I'll be honest, I don't think this film drags. It's, it's two hours and seven minutes, and if anything, I'd like to see a longer version. Yeah, 
And, and I mean, it's also a film that's not concerned with cause and effect or logic. Um, you know, what's the logic of Dracula's various forms and, you know, and he can control the weather. Like, why does sometimes he feed as a bat and a werewolf and, and a sexy dude? It's just because it's cool. Mm. Like, the, it, yeah. it's great. It's great cinema. Like, it just makes us feel these emotions, whether it makes narrative sense or not. It doesn't matter. You know, just like a lot of the Italian horror movies that it takes some stylistic cues from, we're not concerned with logic. We're concerned with what, like, thrills us. And Tom Waite as Renfield is thrilling to watch. Yeah. I think the perfect example of that is at the beginning when they reach Dracula's castle and they go through that um, blue light that's shimmering as it's rising from the ground. Mm-hmm. Now that's in the book. It doesn't mean anything. It's just there, just for atmosphere, and it's in the in the film because it's atmospheric and because it was from the book. But it doesn't mean anything whatsoever. We get you know, to hear Keanu it's, it's, say, "Riding through some blue inferno." <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, speaking of Harker, back in the castle then, we've got some more wonderfully creepy Gary Oldman with the scene with Jonathan Harker shaving. And Dracula's lack of a, of a reflection is aversion to mirrors and that wonderfully OTT acting from Oldman where he licks the blood off the razor. Oh, yes, that's as much like uh, Hannibal Lecter is... Uh... The father beans. Yeah. Father beans, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a trailer moment, isn't it? It is, yes. Now, the film was shot by Michael Balhaus, who shot many of Martin Scorsese's best films, and this film was shot entirely on sound stages and backlots. Now, we've, we've mentioned the look of the film, but next we've got, without doubt, my favourite shot in the film, with Dracula scaling the castle walls like some lizard or a spider, and the moon perfectly framed in the sky above. Now, it's at this point where Harker sees Dracula climbing down this sheer wall, defying gravity, that they actually cut out a brief bit of dialogue where Reeves' character says, Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Probably. But we were dying for him to say, Whoa, dude! And that would have been the best moment, wouldn't it? But that's another moment where you think, Why is Dracula climbing a wall? He can fly. Yeah. But it's atmospheric. Because he looks so he cool. Or, or a bat and he could fly away. But no, he's doing this. Yeah, I think he's doing it on purpose to freak out Harker. Because he can. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then against the Count's orders, Harker goes exploring the castle. And then he has an encounter with Dracula's three brides. One of whom is none other than Monica Bellucci. Yeah, bride number two she is, isn't she? Mm. Oh, if we are going to have an um, encounter with um, three vampires, it's not a bad way to go. Oh, God, no. But you've got that fantastic scene then, you know, when they, you know, they're all over him and they, you know, there's uh, kissing, there's licking, there's biting. And then you have the scene from the mirror above him and he's just lying there himself. Yeah. The yeah. Well, why do vampires, and, uh, you know, that's a fantastic moment. Why did a house of vampires install a mirror on the ceiling? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just for the benefit of the viewers of this movie. And again, it fucking rules. Yeah. Um, but the the presence of the brides actually brings up like some of the artistic uh, influences on on the film. Like they very self consciously brought in symbolist painters and other artists from the 19th century. So when you get that scene of like the the brides who are sort of like combined to have like two torsos, that's a direct lift from a, a Gustave Dore illustration from D- uh, Dante's Inferno. 
and which is one of my like favorite works of literature, one of my favorite groupings of pieces of art. And so it's just another way that, that I like strongly connect with this film. I got that Dracula then comes in, doesn't he? And he interrupts this like twisted orgy and you know, in one of the most disturbing carryovers from Stoker's book, he brings a baby for the brides to feast on. Yeah. And like, you know, even how would that have come across in eighteen ninety seven? That must have just been really quite shocking. As it is today. And it's still a bit even today. Yeah. That is like a direct lift from how people would sort of gin up uh, like propaganda against people that they wanted to accuse of witchcraft or, or heresy. Like a common accusation was, oh, they're grinding babies into potions or whatever or, or eating them. Um, you see a lot of that in uh, the film, the silent horror film Haxon. Uh, references a lot of those practices so that would have been something recognizable as like witchcraft or paganism to uh, stoker's readers and you know one actually cool little touch i forgot to mention in the the shaving scene is the bit where he asks harker if he's written the letters that he's asked him to obviously be sent back to england and harker hands him these i think three envelopes which are sealed and he's flicking through them and it's as if he's reading the letters through the envelopes yeah such a cool moment yeah so has psychic powers too yeah so once those letters are sent off then you know essentially harker has fulfilled his purpose and, and done what dracula wants of him in, in, in his capacity as a solicitor so then dracula with the help of these romanian gypsies travels to england with boxes of his native transylvanian earth back then in the stately gardens of lucy's home we see the girls have a vision of the coming count and then a montage of shots of the ship carrying dracula the demeter being struck by a storm we then see Dr. Seward recreationally using morphine. Now, that's something which wasn't in the book, if I recall. I don't think there was any mention of that. And it isn't followed up in the film, is it? No, it's not. But um, I think it's in line with the idea of um, blood being in, uh, infected, civilization and all that. And uh, it was made in, back in 1991. So I think it was a direct uh, relation to the AIDS pandemic at the time. So I think that's why that's why it's there. Hmm. Yeah, and this is Cop- interesting character flow as well for um, you know this uh, for Sewell. Coppola did say that he didn't want to make the film about the AIDS crisis, but that he thought that blood corruption element is just an, an example of how Dracula is a book that can stay relevant throughout different generations. And so he's not going to make the film about that explicitly, but he's not going to run away from it either yeah you know he doesn't make it up to the reader yeah yeah, he doesn't make it implicit in the film but he's certainly spoken about his own ideas about his condemnation for the catholic church and their sort of attitudes during the whole aids crisis Mm -hmm. and yeah you know it's certainly there's kind of subtext to be read into yeah and and um isn't it um, said that bram stoker himself died of syphilis that that is one of the leading theories yeah Yeah, we don't have an exact um, cause of death but yeah no, but um, that's a great line from Val Helsing. Civilization and civilization have advanced together. Yeah. So later then, during the storm, Mina sees Dracula in the shape of a werewolf having his way with Lucy in the garden at night. And then, having fed on the crew of the Demeter, he's now young and healthy looking, and he bursts out of one of his boxes of earth. We then see Mina meeting the Count in daylight. Now, this kind of goes against the established law of vampires but i think the reading of it here is that he can endure daylight but his powers are of course weakened yes correct that's that's what van helsing says yeah now dr seward then visits lucy 
after her confrontation with Dracula in his wolf form. And she tells him that she's changing. And then we obviously see her condition steadily worsening. Something which seems to happen for... It just goes on forever in the book, doesn't it? And we then see Dracula and Mina at the Nickelodeon where he kind of presses his seduction of her. Now, look, I've got to ask you guys, do you buy the romance between these two? Steve, I think I know what you're going to say already. Yeah, oh. I do, yeah. I, I haven't got a problem with the guy. I mean, he is a uh, rich count from abroad. He's got, he's exotic, he's different. He's got John Lennon glasses on. This is something that she would be attracted to, you know, and even though she is very much, you know, buttoned up, I think that this does represent her other side, her, her id, her libido, so, you know, coming out, um, something that Jonathan can't give her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a passionate romance. It's not, it's not one that was would, you know. I know she says that you know that she wants to spend eternity with him. I don't think they would last for eternity together because he would fizzle out. I think, but yeah, it's um, it, it's a very that passion. I think is very attractive, and I can't see why she wouldn't uh, fall for him. Yeah, he he is extremely exotic and and handsome and charismatic and dresses extraordinarily well. Um, just. Enormous shout out to costume designer Aiko Ishioka, just hitting a home run on every level in this movie, from the the period costumes to the like the the Gustav Klimt inspired like golden robe that Dracula has to, to his armor that we talked about earlier. Just amazing stuff all around. And so, anybody dressed by Aiko um, is gonna be attractive. But I also you know he is manipulating her. Like he kidnaps her fiance. He murders her best friend, and so now she's isolated. And so all of a sudden, he comes in off the street to sweep her off her feet. Well, of course, she's feeling isolated and alone, looking for for some stability. And and here comes a prince. It's a passionate romance that he's instigated and is manipulating. And so I I have to think that there's some false note in, in his love for her, if he's willing to subject her to that sort of manipulation. Yeah, personally, I only think, I, I only buy this romance between the two in terms of this link that's formed between Elizabeth and Mina and the fact yeah. that Mina is some sort of, you know, reincarnated ancestor of Elizabeth's. Take that out of the story and I struggle with it. I really do. I don't know. I think that, you know, when she's talking to Lucy earlier on and, you know, they're looking at um, pictures from the Kama Sutra, Mina has got this side to her, this sexual side to her, which she's trying to uh, suppress, and he allows her to to open up to that. And I, I think that's a believable story. I mean, a, a, a believable... Um, it's not a healthy relationship, mm. and he's definitely abusing her. However, she doesn't see that, and I can I can see her falling for that, because she has got this hints of the sexuality to her and you know her friend is so overtly sexual that she you know she does come across as very very staid in uh, in comparison and yet you know it, it is there and he's seen that and he, he opens that up from her so i can't see why it's also victorian repression as well you know that in there and so yeah. she's breaking her free from that so you know i i can see why she would want to do that but uh, I agree with John. I think that you know, he is manipulating her. He is abusing her in many ways. If you don't believe that he is a, a very nasty man because he's a vampire, well, what he's doing to her is despicable. But she can't see that. 
And we did see him she... eat a baby 10 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. We can see that, but of course she can't see that, and it's all wild and exotic to her. Yeah, no, no, that's another good point, Steve. That makes sense. So then we meet Dr. Van Helsing, played, of course, Steve, by our fellow Welshman, Anthony Hopkins. And Coppola says that he encouraged Hopkins to give Van Helsing a certain eccentricity, which I think definitely comes across. Now, he arrives at the Western home as Dracula appears outside Lucy's bedroom and again has his way with her. Van Helsing then sees that Lucy is in need of blood, having been further drained by Dracula, and gives Lucy a transfusion of blood from both Arthur and Quincy. Outside then in the garden, after the transfusion, we see that moment where Van Helsing essentially teleports. What is that all about? Is that him using hypnosis on them? Um, I think he's he's using like stage musician tricks. He he's showing them that there are things in this world that they can't understand. Now, I don't think he has any supernatural powers, but but I think he's able to to manipulate them in ways that they don't understand. And you know, we see him explicitly hypnotize Mina later in the film. So I I think him hypnotizing those men in that instance is um, very possible. He's undermining how they see the world, isn't it? Their mm-hmm. their confidence in the world. Yeah, yeah, and obviously the hypnosis element—that that—that is a big part of the kind of the latter act of the book when they're making their way from England to Transylvania, pursuing Dracula, and at that point, then Nina has kind of been turned, and she's turning day by day and getting worse. But he then uses, doesn't he, this link that they have? He hypnotizes her, and then she then gives away where potentially Dracula is, and that's how they track him. So then Harker then escapes from the castle and finds solace with a convent of nuns and sends word to Mina. Meanwhile, Lucy urges Mina to go to Jonathan and marry him as her condition worsens. I really do think Sadie's Frost performance is one of the stronger ones in the film. And God, she looks so amazing in that white dress, especially when she's pale and like bloods flowing from her mouth it just it looks so amazing and the special effects that that went into those sequences where she had to walk backwards and and all that is i'm sure it was incredibly and technically difficult but it's such a payoff when you know like she's vomiting blood onto anthony hopkins as he's holding the crucifix and we see that decapitation like it, it's so bloody and and so cathartic and so horrifying that it's just an all around home run on on all fronts with that performance and that that sequence. Yeah, I think she's great. And then later on, then in the form of a wolf, Dracula comes through, doesn't he? And this is juxtaposed with Mina and Jonathan's wedding. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Coppola mix a religious ceremony with parallel scenes of violence, is it? <laughs> Steve, obviously, you and I, that... yeah, we talked on the Godfather episode about that amazing you know the the baptism and then michael clearing out the decks getting rid of the competition you know that that amazing scene towards the end of the godfather we see something similar here and it is interesting that he is going for like romanian orthodox imagery here like they're not at a church of england church certainly uh, getting this ceremony done and i find it interesting that it's a very exotic religious ceremony for these young Victorians to to be participating in. So even in maintaining the strict social order of like Victorian coupling, there still is a sense of like risk and danger and and otherness. Yeah. And that scene is, you know, as a wolf, he kind of finishes Lucy off. Coppola says that the gushing blood is an homage to Kubrick's The Shining. We then see Lucy's family and the three suitors mourning her death and she's kind of got that glass 
sort of casket, glass top casket, which um, Coppola said was an homage to, is it, um, that would be Sleeping Beauty, wouldn't it? Sleeping Beauty, yeah. 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 And then Mina and Jonathan return to England and Harker sees Dracula, now young and restored. He's now obviously suffered, as you mentioned, this rapid onset of grey hair, no doubt from being fed upon by Dracula's brides. And then Van Helsing and as I'll call them, the three suitors, they go to Lucy's tomb at the cemetery. And this really is one of the creepiest and, like you say, John, most well-staged moments in the film. And I just love the cut from Lucy's decapitation to Van Helsing cutting that rare <laughs> yeah. joint of beef. Not subtle, not subtle at all, yeah. but, you know. Yeah. No, no. Was she, was she in much pain? Yeah, she was in a lot of pain. And then we cut off her head and <laughs> took out her heart from the body. I love how matter-of-fact he is. Like after a death, when um, Seward, he says, um, he pulls him aside and he says, look, uh, I, I need um, some surgeon's knives. What do you need them for? Oh, I, oh, I just intend to cut out her heart and uh, cut her head off. <laughs> he's just really matter-of-fact about it, isn't he? And it's almost like he can't understand why people are so surprised and um, outraged by it all. Yeah. yeah, and then all of our assembled protagonists, they go to Carfax Abbey to confront Dracula himself. He escapes and they destroy his boxes of Transylvanian dirt as he turns and goes after Mina. The men then confront him in his man-bat-beast form, and then he turns into a plague of rats and escapes again. Oh, that's a great scene. He goes out into the darkness, and then yeah. when they shine the light, he's just a pile of rats, which just collapse onto the floor. And, and then, then just another like moment that just appeals to my core when he is that demon back creature and he's like look what your god has done to me <laughs> it's so cool we will yeah. try to avoid the hallucinations uh, tonight <laughs> and, and yeah sorry i couldn't i couldn't resist um, no 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 it's brilliant it's brilliant <laughs> Uh, and, and then, yeah, the, the, the rats, because we've seen him take so many forms, but we haven't seen him, like, divide himself into particulates like that. And it's incredibly creepy and, and off-putting. Yeah, and the fog, the green fog. Yeah. That, uh, you know, that how he gets into the room. You know, I mean, in that one scene, he's, what, what is he? He's, he's fog, he's human, he's giant bats, he's lots of uh, rats, all in the same scene. Yeah. Mm. So let's let's just take a breather uh, to talk about that score by Polish composer Wojciech Kilar. Because Steve, I know you've got some stuff to say about the score for this film. I, I love the score. I really, it's so atmospheric. It's so gothic. It's so big. I've I've been listening to it for many, decades now, and it's you know it, I often like to listen to soundtracks in in my car, and it's one of the ones that you can turn up really really loud. People passing look at you really, really oddly because it's so loud. But it's just, you know, this, this build up, this repetition, it's very much like uh, like the Cape Fear score um, in, in some respects, but it's got this distinct European style into it, which, um, you know, uh, uh, Killer was a uh, Polish composer. He didn't do a great deal of uh, American films. I know he did The Pianist as well, didn't he? But uh, yeah, it's it's a a wonderful, wonderful score. So atmospheric and so unusual compared to the scores that we are used to from from Hollywood. Yeah, I, mean, it, I think it needed this European sensibility to you know to provide something different for this character. Yeah, I, I think I was messaging you and our and our mutual friend Stephen Simpson, who obviously is a 
massive film score on that and, and just seeing how amazing the score was and it's, it's got elements of there's the little bits that reminded me of Howard Shaw certainly a lot of bits that reminded me of Jerry Goldsmith yeah yeah and there's also a moment which is very much um, like Tim Burton's composer um, Danny Elfman Danny Elfman there's yeah like, there's like this uh, dream kind of almost Carlesque uh, moments to it as well which is you know lovely to listen to oh yeah there's definitely elements of Danny Elfman's best work here as well yeah it's just an amazing score I just add so much to the film and you know this film I can't imagine is an easy film to score because it's so hyper stylized there's so many montages and real fast sequences that in order to for a score to even make itself known it has to be you know enormous but then you run the risk of like announcing yourself in, in every single scene and so it does manage to be both very powerful but also atmospheric and it's going almost the the entire film and it never wears out its welcome it's incredibly melodic and beautiful and supports this wild and potentially unwieldy movie and so it's just an incredible balancing act for for the composer to be able to pull that off yeah it's, it's operatic isn't it it's yeah. operatic and, and i think that's one of the reasons why it has to you say it's throughout the whole movie well that's what opera is isn't it it's music mm-hmm. throughout and uh yeah i, I think that it's a, it's a wonderful score i mean if, if people haven't heard it in isolation you know do so because um it, it, it's a really good listen yeah and then the last act begins doesn't it as our protagonist race to Transylvania by land as Dracula makes his way by sea with the aim of intercepting him before he can get back to the solace of his castle. This last act on the Borgo Pass Road was, like the rest of the film, shot on a soundstage. Mina and Van Helsing are tormented by the three brides who then Van Helsing beheads the next day, but not before they kill the horses that they're riding on. And then you've got the big final confrontation. Now, Quincy is is fatally stabbed, isn't he, by the um, Romanian gypsies. Harker, is it Harker? Yeah, Harker cuts Dracula's throat. And is it Quincy in a, like a last effort stabs Dracula through the heart? Is it Quincy? He stabs him, yeah. Through- yeah, yeah, Quincy does. Right. But unlike the book, where his death, like I said before, is literally described in six brief lines, they mortally wound him. Mina then takes him into his castle and she finishes him off herself and then beheads him. And it finishes with a shot of the ceiling mural of Dracula and Elisabetta. And I kind of wish that we had the nice little coda that Stoker's book had, because I really did like that in the book. But I guess Coppola's telling a slightly different story here with a different tone, isn't he? And and I think in terms of that, I guess the film ended as it should. You've got to wonder how Mina and Jonathan can ever have a proper life together. They're married now, but what can their, their life together will be like you just got to guess you can't it's never going to be an ordinary life as it never would be anyway after these adventures but the fact Mm. that she was seduced by this man that she felt so much for him that she was willing to die for this i say this man but this this beast it's going to affect them forever so Mm. i don't think you could have a nice ending i don't think you could have a nice moment at the end where she comes out and throws her arms around him and then you know they go off in the sunset together that's not going to that's never going to work i don't think i mean the, the fact is her true love or her true passion, maybe not love, her true passion has died and he's dying on the floor in front of her. Everything else pales in comparison. And I mean, for me, I think this ending is is perfect because this is just such 
one of the most explicit pieces of religious iconography in like any vampire film because he he quotes Christ on the cross when he's dying. He says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And then it is finished, which are which is the last words of of Jesus. And then after he's killed, we see you know the cross that he stabbed at the beginning be healed. And so he basically at the beginning of the film he announces himself as like the Antichrist. And renounces God and, you know, chooses to do everything unholy that he can in the world, you know, feeding off of his own subjects, feeding on babies, murdering the innocent. And then at the end, that cycle is complete and he's redeemed. Um, maybe do you he think does, he's redeemed? Um, I don't know if he, he – I don't think he deserves it, but it's, you know, all of his sins are, are like – reversed or at least in some manner because we see that cross get healed and so there is a little bit of satisfaction it's almost almost the the idea of the christian idea of of forgiveness is once you're forgiven it doesn't matter what part of it it is in your life after the greatest sin if you confess and you know you can be forgiven even then so maybe that's what it is yeah so even if he's not redeemed at least it's a completion of this fall and rise cycle because at least he's realized that he has done wrong, and through his relationship with Mina, he's a- attempting to do something good with his last breath, even if it took being murdered for him to come to that conclusion. Yeah, I'm I, I glad you said that, John, because I, my next question was going to be, because on your podcast, Popcorn Eschaton, you discuss religion and spirituality in film. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask what you think of the religious aspects, not just of Stoker's original book, but those that Coppola weaves into his adaptation, but I guess, yeah, you've, 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 you've certainly covered that there. Yeah, and I mean, the the, the Im- implicit religious imagery is like always there in vampires. I mean, it, there's that meal with wine and bread it, between uh, wh- whatever version you have, either Harker or Renfield and, and Dracula. And so that's obviously, you know, a parallel to The Last Supper. And it certainly would be The Last Supper for Renfield. You know, The Blood is a Life is a quote from Deuteronomy. And so one of the, one of the, the core reasons why vampires have stuck around especially in european mythology is that when the vampire craze when they started to become when reports of vampires started to like proliferate around europe it was in the 18th century resurrection from the dead was something only god can do so the idea that bodies were coming out of the ground still alive and able to sort of usurp god's authority of eternal salvation or damnation was nightmarish to the people of the 18th and 19th century and so that's what fed into the fascination with with vampires as a as a phenomenon as a as a mythology and you know there there have been creatures that have come back from the dead to feel on the living since all of civilization but the specific vampire that Dracula is descended from I, I think just ties in directly into Christianity so directly and I think Coppola's film taps into it more than any other uh vampire story i think you know with scenes like like the last scene in the film and you know coppola's obviously one who has a ton of catholic imagery in his films and, and so I, I think it's accomplished with this this sort of like bravura like blood spurting glory it's it's uh, the most gore it's one of the most it's one of the goriest religious films i've ever seen and then part of what makes me so fascinated about it yeah 
Let me ask you a question, if you don't mind, John. Sure. Um, one of the scenes of the film, right at the, right to the very bottom, um, the start of the film, when um, Jonathan is eating uh, food and he's with Dracula, there's the one line Dracula says, we often think of it as a, a funny line when he says, I don't drink wine. Mm-hmm. Now, is that him just, you know, we always think that of uh, him saying, I don't drink wine, I drink blood. And it's quite an amusing line. But could that be him say, um, confessing that he doesn't take communion? I think you've hit exactly on on how I th- at least Coppola has turned that phrase on its head. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's that's a great insight. So thank you for pointing that out. Oh, especially because we see a communion wafer used as a weapon later in the film yes, by Ben Van Helsing. He uses that to like brand Mina's Mina's forehead. So yeah, there's uh, yes, more yeah. than one communion image in this movie. So Coppola has said that the shoot wasn't a terribly enjoyable experience. He enjoyed working with his son Roman, uh, but he speaks of issues with the studio regarding budgetary squabbles, and he said that he was really trying his best to make use of that $40 million budget to create as good a film as he could. And as I said, he's really subtle in his criticism of Winona Ryder, but like I said, he doesn't levy the same criticism towards Keanu Reeves for whatever reason. And I do think it's these two performances here that unfortunately do let the film down. Hopkins is, you know, wonderfully over the top and, and, and gives this really sort of quirky, eccentric performance. Sadie Frost, I think, is fantastic. You know, she, she just looks incredible and just sells her part completely. Yeah. She's, she's flirtatious and, advent- yeah, yeah. and sexual, but also like innocent somehow like it's very like she's flirting with these grown men and she's totally in control of them but it's also like kind of charming and funny yeah charming that's what she is isn't she yeah she really is yeah yeah because even though she's saying some quite outrageous things you don't ever think of her uh in in, the way you think of her is never diminished in any way you know i mean you think that she is still a very likable person yeah some of the things that she says could easily be you know inferred but it's not there yeah now, Coppola said that it wasn't really his film. He was just the director, you know, to quote him directly. But he wasn't in a good financial state when he took this film on. And I think there's clearly a desire in him to get back on his feet here, both financially and creatively. And it did work for him as the film went on to make over $215 million worldwide. He was nominated for four Academy Awards, winning three for Best Costume Design. As you said, John, the costumes in this film are phenomenal. Best Sound Effects added in best makeup obviously the, the majority going on the, the work they did on Oldman and obviously then to a lesser extent it's certainly not um, in terms of Keanu Reeves's grey hair <laughs> but yeah you know, some of the makeup in this you know, like that bat creature thing that he is is just phenomenal you say that it's not his film though I, I can't imagine any other director yeah but they, they were his words He's, he feels that this wasn't yeah. his film Yes, and yet he stamped himself, his personality, and his um, his own themes and his his own religion. Everything is stamped so clearly on Twitter. I I I think that he's understanding it there. Yeah, but you know, there's also, as we said earlier, there's elements where I I look at this film and I think I, this doesn't look like a Francis Ford Coppola film in so many ways. You know, certainly when you look no, at his, his earlier films. But and but when you think that dire- directly after this, he made Jack with um, Robin with Williams. Robin Williams, which is Williams a, yeah. A, appalling film um and which is definitely um, not a francis coppola film so i think i also think that that maybe we because he had that string of like groundbreaking movies that you know like who else had a 
a decade like Coppola had in, in, in the 70s. But, he, you know, in the 80s, he made uh, like The Outsiders and Rumblefish. And if you look at Rumblefish compared to The Conversation and then someone would tell you that's made by the same director, you kind of like your brain would explode. So I, I think he he has a much larger or, or much broader um, artistic palette than sometimes we give him credit for. And like we he's yeah. always he's going to go down as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. But I think his his interests and, and what he wants to present on screen, I think we sometimes forget that. Oh, yeah, he, he also he's he also made one from the heart, you know. Well, he, he made quite a lot of films in the 80s, which we often forget. Yeah. You know, we often think of him as a, a director who was really, really struggling to get his films financed. I think he made a, a five or six films in in the 80s, you know, from One from the Heart and the Outsiders and Rumblefish and Tucker and Peggy um, Suga Married. You mean, and they're all quality films. They might not be The Godfather, but they're all very different. But they're all quality films, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. The Cotton Club, I forgot that. Yeah, of course. So then, Jed, of the two adaptations we've discussed here, and obviously there were many, many others that have come along, both in terms of vampires and, and direct adaptations of Bram Stoker's story of Dracula, which are your favourites, and which do you think most successfully translates Stoker's book to the big screen? Uh, well, I think Co- Coppola's version, I think, is the one that really digs into the epistolary nature of the book the most. Um, because there is a lot of like Mina and Harker and, and Van Helsing narrating, and you don't get that in the other films. And you also don't get the three suitors. You, you don't get the the epic chase in a lot of the other versions. So, you know, I think his version actually hews closest to, to the novel. I think my favorite Dracula is Lugosi, but my fa- I, Bram Stoker's Dracula is my favorite vampire film period it's honestly like watching it again for this podcast it just made me love it even more and it's gonna go down as one of my all-time favorite films like just bar none yeah i agree i think that uh, my favorite vampire film again bram stoker's dracula i think it's size it's scope it's the operatic nature of it the blood the philosophy it's got it tries it crams so much into the two hours it's relentless in its pacing i think that yes every time we think of dracula we think of bella lugosi and i think that he has a very special place in film history however brown stroker's dracula is the definitive version if you ask me mm-hmm. it is the, anyway, out of all the films and, and i mean i love nosferatu the 1922 version w uh, fw uh, Murnau. you know that's a wonderful film as well and there's been some really really good the Hammer film is quite is good as well. Yeah. But no, the, I think for me, it is Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> yeah, to give the actual title the film should have. Yeah, I am. Um, I think this is a flawed masterpiece. It, it is hyper stylized, but I don't think that in any way goes against the film. I, you know, I love the look of the film. I love the techniques he used. You know, he was working with. You know, a forty million dollar budget, which was you know back then. What did we have the, the year before? Terminator Two cost a hundred million. That obviously being on a far bigger scale in terms of effects and stuff. Like you know, I guess forty million was a decent budget for him to make a film like this back then. But it, it, it's got 
a kind of epic scope to it even if you know as those trains are going through the tunnels you can tell that they're models but i think there's like a quaintness to it i, I just love you know the, the overall look of the film and you know the, the costume design this from a visual and a technical point of view this film is brilliant i just think unfortunately there's one or two performances as i've mentioned which really do bog the film down for me but i will agree with you guys i think this is the best and most faithful and most accurate adaptation of Bram Stoker's book even though it does make some changes I don't think they harm the overall story and I mean especially for me as a budding cinephile like when I first saw this movie you know just seeing Gary Oldman and Tom Waits and and Anthony Hopkins and Keanu Reeves like like this is not his brightest moment but I'm an an enormous Keanu Reeves fan I, I love him to death and so to see like that cast in this film it was just so magical you know like as a 19 20 year old it just re-ups um how much i love it every time i watch it so i really appreciate getting to talk to talk about it with you guys yeah well i think in terms of my favorite vampire film i don't think it's this if i'm being honest my favorite vampire film i gotta say i think it might be interview with the vampire oh cool oh wow which came out two years after this um i've not seen that film for years but think for the longest time that has been my kind of um favorite i i've not read Anne rice's novel so i don't know how it is in terms of an adaptation of that but um yeah i really do like that film and um yeah i think that one is long overdue a rewatch and yeah, i would that, also let you read yeah. that book because uh interview with the vampire is a very good book i think that the vampire genre is so there's got some so wonderful you know um films in it and and tv salem's lot is a favorite of mine yeah the the um, TV series Let the Right One In is something that yeah a very different yeah. take on the vampire you know, I mean, Thirty Days of Night yeah, yeah uh, another all these are very different takes yeah, yeah. But, I, um, I really love um, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire from 1932 yeah. just a very strange unique take as well and let's not forget yeah. Uh, yeah. Lost Boys <laughs> I, I love <laughs> which Lost I've never Boys. actually seen I've what? never actually seen it holy I know. cow Steve I wow. love I know they're only noodles Michael <laughs> that's lost on me (laughs) so there we have it gents that is our rundown of two uh, well one certainly important adaptation of uh, Bram Stoker's 1897 novel and another one which uh, we think is uh, well I think a far better adaptation isn't it and a film that we like a lot more but that doesn't take anything away from the importance of Browning's film which is had a massive influence on so many horror films and, and films in general that followed. But gents, uh, what have you got uh, coming up and where can people hit you up on social media if they want to chat about uh, blood sucking, uh, your wolf spain and your aversion to garlic? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, like Sky so kindly pointed out earlier, uh, I co-host Popcorn Eschaton with my friend Scott Thoreau. That's on the Zebras in America feed. We focus on spirituality and uh, politics in film. Uh, We recently recorded uh, an episode on the 1973 spy satire thriller, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, with the brilliant Marcus Pinn. So that was a a very different conversation than this one, but it was also very enlightening. Um, So, And I'm on all the social medias at Quasar Sniffer, where you can talk to me about blood drinking and Catholicism all you want. For myself, um, I've been watching a lot of martial art movies recently, 
And so I've been uh, hoping that, um, you know, in the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, um, I'll have something out for everybody to have a read of uh, 1970s Chinese uh, martial arts films, um, because it's something that I adore. And I've just been watching so many the last couple of weeks. I've been on a, a binge of uh, Shaw Brothers and Golden yes. Harvest films. Did you uh, dive into the um, Shaw Brothers box sets? Yes, I've got Arrow Player, so I've been um, looking yes. at them. I've been uh, yes, yeah, so and uh, and uh, I've got quite a few my on my you know in my own collection anyway. So uh, I've got the Joseph Co um, uh, collection, which I've been trying to get through them, and a Samo Hang um, box set. So uh, you know that's what I've been doing. So I hopefully very soon we'll have something uh, in writing at least of uh, something to do with the 70s uh, martial arts so if you want to discuss that and Dracula and blood and Catholicism which I don't know much about but I'll I'll give it a go <laughs> at Welsh Bluesman on Twitter that's the best place sorry X is it X now Twitter, X. Twitter, Twitter. no it's not no it's, it's not Twitter. It's still, Twitter okay still Twitter yeah. okay yeah, um, hopefully by the time this episode hits, uh, Steve's episode on 70s Chinese martial arts cinema will either be on the site or, or you know, a few days later. So yeah, uh, we hope you enjoy that. Uh, please check out uh, Martin Kessler's recent article that went up, well, today, uh, at the time of recording, on James Gunn's 2021 The Suicide Squad, his sort of in-defense of peace about that film. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, that's Sky with an E. Uh, thank you everyone who said uh, kind things about our last few episodes and uh, the, the the people who were telling their friends to seek us out because uh, you know we're, we're always getting uh, new reviews popping up on Apple Podcasts people sending us messages you know saying they've just discovered us and, and a binge in our back catalogue so thank you so much for, for everyone's continued support which just uh, leaves it to say stay safe, be excellent to one another but more importantly stay, stay classy, classy. <laughs>